Hello and welcome to the Tao of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I'm Doug Belshaw. And I'm Laura Hilliger. This podcast season is currently partially unfunded. You can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com slash weareopen. So today, we're really pleased to introduce our guest, who's a futurist, an author, and an educator, Brian Alexander. We're going to see where this conversation leads us, but Brian is currently thinking a lot about the intersection of education, technology, and climate, so regular listeners will know why we're so excited to have him on. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for hosting me. Really, really good to talk with both of you. So, Brian, we usually begin with all of our guests in kind of delving into their brain by finding out what might be their favorite book or books. Now, you're an author yourself, and I'm sure you've got lots and lots of favorite books, but do you want to kick off by maybe uh, telling us a couple of your, your favorite books? Sure. And and this is always the kind of question that drives people nuts if they're if they're big fans of reading a lot, you know, that uh, they oh, I have so many favorite books. So the the one I was going to I was going to mention today is actually uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace, um, which uh, I picked in part for educational reasons. Uh, I read it in um, 10th grade because a teacher told me I couldn't read it. Uh, <laughs> teacher said, you're not capable of reading this book. So. I, I had to set to, and uh, I don't. I honestly don't think they were trying to as a trick to get me to read it. I think they honestly thought uh, it was it was too hard, and mm-hmm. and so it was tenth, obviously tenth grade. Did you say tenth grade? Yeah, and yeah, it was tenth grade for those on the US? Uh, at that point, fifteen or sixteen. Fifteen, sixteen. Okay. So it was definitely the hardest book I read at that time in my life, and uh, and it's magnificent. It's it's just it's just crammed full of incredible stories, just nonstop, and uh, it's, I mean. There's all kinds of things we can say about it, but I, I keep coming back to it in part because of that puckish reading experience, but also because it's uh, it appeals to my life in all kinds of ways. One is that the it, it's such a deep dive into history. I mean, it's a historical novel, but it's also about history and how we exist in time. And so as a futurist, that really appeals to me. In fact, the last 200 pages or so is basically an extended essay on that question. Mm. But also it's... Uh, it has this incredible ability, uh, it's famous for this, to zoom into minute personal scenes and then to zoom way back out to, you know, all of Europe and Russia at the same time. And and uh, in, in my work, I have to do that kind of move. I have to think about individual campuses, individual institutions and problems, but also to take a look at global trends. And I, I think having that, that ability to change scales from the micro to the meso to the macro is, is a great skill to have. Do you Laura, think that have that, you read War and Peace? Uh, I have not read War and Peace. I think that maybe in the 10th grade, I picked it up and then decided, without anybody telling me I couldn't read it, I just decided I didn't no. want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, maybe I was too young and I will definitely, I have it, so I should probably get it out of the anti-library and into the library. But no. I wanted to... Um, Brian, I wanted to ask you, you just said that you think that having that skill to be able to zoom in and zoom out is a really mm. good skill to have. Do yeah. you think it's trainable? And if so, how might people actually train that? I think it is trainable and it, it is needed because all too often people fail to make that jump. Um, mm. in, in higher education, often you'll see people who really focus closely on either their institution 
uh, and generalize from that or on their profession. Uh, so someone who is a biologist focusing on the life sciences, for example. Um, and so the ability to leap from that perspective up to a larger one uh, can be very challenging. And then the opposite, people who can generalize from the, the big macro view and fail to actually notice individual contours, individual differences. Um, I, I think it's trainable in part through practice uh, and getting people to look in, you know, depending on what people's stance is and where they come from. Um I mean, I do a lot of, of teaching my students how to do trends analysis. And so that forces them up into that macro picture. Um, and then also doing case studies and getting them to think about their own experience pushes them back to the micro level. But I think there are other ways to train it as well. <clears throat> and reading War and Peace might be one of the best. Mm. There's something about uh, reading fiction which takes you into a different state of consciousness or a different way of being receptive to, to things. Um, I, I, think it, I think it does. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a, a fascinating argument that uh, Kim Stanley Robinson makes where he says that in many ways, historical fiction and science fiction are structurally identical uh, in that both involve world building. Mm-hmm. And, and for the typical reader, that world building has to be extensive and it has to be convincing. And, you know, the average reader of a, of a you know, medieval murder mystery is probably not up on, say, trade routes across Central Europe in the 14th century. Uh, so you have to build that out and, and make that convincing. Uh, and the same is true if, you know, if we have the adventures of, uh, of Doug Belshaw in the 31st century, we still have to build that universe out uh, and, and, and make that credible. Uh, it's an interesting argument, and I, I think it's a, it's a powerful one. Um, and one of the reasons I teach science fiction in almost every class I can is to get that kind of emo- imaginative stretching, to get people to uh, think that far out and to uh, be that creative. I just hope that people haven't got an image in their mind now of Doug Belsh on the 31st century with some kind of Flash Gordon um, or me in some kind of Speedos. I just hope that that uh, for me, it was people's heads. Yeah. It was Fry from Futurama. Oh, 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 this is brutal. Oh, my gosh. But no, no, I'm, I'm not going to be able to unsee that now, Doug. <laughs> That's why Fry, I was now, smiling. Are there any other books you want to uh, throw into the mix? The uh, one book that I reread about every six months uh, is a uh, 1970s uh, work of critical theory by Deleuze and Guattari called A Thousand Plateau. And I, I read it and reread it because it is such a strange and rich and stimulating book. Uh, it's a uh, it's a work of uh, it's kind of hard to describe because Deleuze and Guattari really invented their own their own thing. Um, you could call it post-structuralist if you want. Uh, postmodern doesn't quite do it justice, but it's uh, it's th- them building on some previous work of theirs, trying to analyze ways of thinking. Um, and so they, this is where they developed the rhizome model, um, most extensively, uh, this, okay. uh, and they come up with a whole series of philosophical ideas that <clears throat> are very challenging, very strange, very counterintuitive, very rich, but also it's a strange book in the, the opening page. They say, this is not a traditional book. We don't want you to read this in a linear sequence. We want you to play this book like a vinyl record. We want you to just <laughs> dip, dip into it at different points. Um, and uh, it's 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 extraordinary. Um, it's it's very rich. It's very challenging. It reflects an astonishing amount of learning from from both of the authors, um, and it's fun. So I yeah I I, I love that book. And so you dip you dip into it every six months. You say just to kind of stimulate your thinking, get that scratch mix going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Wow, excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing those two. Um, let's get into your work now, unless you, there's anything else you want to, to say before we get into that. Well, I've got a, a, a doctorate in English, and that always makes you want to assign more readings. So I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to heroically stop that impulse right now and, 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 and go on. That I is a actually, couple of books right there. Very good. I was actually just thinking I need a budget for my book buying because every time we yes. have a guest on the Tao of Well, I go out and buy the books they recommend and because I just have to. I mean, hmm. yes, I want to read both of those books. So, Well, yeah. interestingly, there's a, an author called Ryan Holiday who's done a lot of Stoic, stoic um, philosophy and this, this kind of thing. Mm. Start on marketing, I think. And I remember he, he has a newsletter called the, the, just called The Reading List. And he says at the bottom, you know, anytime someone recommends a book to him, he just goes and buys it immediately, no matter how much it costs. And mm. the reason being that the amount of value you're going to get from that book, no matter how much it costs, is way more than the the sticker price, which I thought was a, it changed my way of thinking about buying books anyway. Mm. Mm. Cool. All right. Well, let's start right from the beginning, because some people might not have been following your work, might be hearing about you for the first time. Um, so let's start with that label futurist. Um, I watch and watch my kids and also watch on television, a lot of, uh, football or soccer, as you call it in America. Yeah. And people have been looking back at the season and thinking about predictions and kind of going, Oh, well, look, you thought this team was going to win the league and they haven't won the league or whatever. Um, and that's kind of predicting the future or thinking, you know, what's going to happen or someone might put a bet on a, on a sporting match or something like that. Sure. But to what extent is that different to what you're doing as a futurist? Because you're not just labeling yourself a futurist, you are mm. part of a society of futurists, right? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm on the board of the Association of Professional Futurists and I do a lot of work with that group. Um, this is a this is a chestnut topic for futurists mm. to bash around. <laughs> um, and, and most professional futurists will say, uh, that's not exactly what they do. They don't do prediction per se. Uh, what they do is they try to help their clients think more strategically, more intelligently, and more creatively about their future. And so that often involves helping them think through multiple possible futures uh, for their organization, their sector, their domain, their business, whatever, and then try to help plan for the best one so they can achieve it. Um, now, involved is often some form of prediction, although a lot of futurists hate the word. They'll refer to it as the P word. Um, and then there are people who are not who are who are futurists in different senses, um, who will speak very confidently in a predictive sense. Uh, Michio Kaku, for example, uh, talking about the future of science, will say, well, this is going to happen and this is going to happen straight up. Um, so there's a kind of grammatical level to it. Uh, where you speak in a kind of perfect present. Um, but I think most futurists now are are very conscious of the difficulty of, of prediction, and they try to basically improve our knowledge of the future, as it were. Um, a good friend of mine, Peter Bishop, has a program uh, called Teach the Future, and it's, its slogan is to get people teaching the future like we teach history. Um, so to to remind people that in in the classic words of the very very bad movie Plan Nine from Outer Space, we are all of us interested in the future because that is where we'll be spending the rest of our lives. Um, he uh, um, but he points out that you know we we have a lot of intellectual tools for trying to think about the future and we can teach them very readily. Um, and also also just the fact of thinking about the future is actually 
that's not an easy step to take uh, for a lot of people. Um, it's interesting that you talk about the kind of analog between um, the history and the future. You've, you've said that a couple of times. Um, I remember reading a book called A History of Histories, and it was a, a book mm. of historiography and the way that people think about the writing of history and how it's done. And mm -hmm. so you're kind of working at a meta level, thinking about the the future. Just to make this a bit more um, tangible for people who are listening to this who might not really get what we're saying, um, mm -hmm. there's a book that you published called Academia Next in in 2020, which seems like a million years ago now, obviously. Um, <laughs> but you talked about different scenarios, right, for higher education. Um, and and this is what one of the things that Futurist is. Like, here's if, if trends go this yes. way or trends go that way or if, you know. Um, yeah. So we you talked about peak higher education, healthcare nation. These are the titles of some of the um, chapters, as you know. Open education, triumphant, renaissance. Augmented Campus, Siri Tudemy, and Retro Campus. Um, and so I, I guess you're just thinking about, well, which way could things go? Looking back, are there any particular trends that you think you think we've gone one way rather than another in terms of higher education and any which you think are just way off beam? And maybe if we get into that, people can understand sure. how, how it works, if you see what I mean. But let me, let me set that up. The, the, the scenarios are the second half of the book. The first half of the book uh, looks at trends. And so I need, I need to explain that because that sets up the, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. the scenarios. A, a trend is simply any force that exists in the present and in recent history that looks likely to shape the future. And the advantage of doing trends analysis is that you can back it up very carefully with evidence. And so a lot of my work is actually trends analysis. I, mean, I publish a monthly uh, report looking at present trends. I constantly, every day, do what's called horizon scanning uh, to look for information about current developments. And once you do this, you can do some kind of basic extrapolation, right? So you can point to, say, um, you know, uh, rise in the use of a certain technology and say, all right, well, let's imagine if that rise continues over the next few years. Or you could look at, say, one topic I'll talk, be talking about a bit more, a decline in enrollment. Let's project forward. What if that decline continues? And so you can easily gain more data and then build a more refined extrapolation model off of that. Uh, so the first half of the book is looking at trends across multiple domains. Uh, some of them are technological, some of them are demographic, economic, cultural, political. Some of them are structural within higher education, for example. And just one caveat, uh, Academia Next is focusing on the United States. Um, so it, it involves international education to a small extent, but for reasons of scope, um, as well as the importance of, and complexity of American higher education, it focuses on the U.S. for that one book. So out of those trends, I was able to build out some of these scenarios, and Doug, you very kindly listed them. I think two that have simply borne out um, are Healthcare Nation and Peak Higher Ed. So Healthcare Nation, again, is a very, very distinctly American one because the United States has this unique way of funding uh, healthcare, uh, which is notorious in a lot of ways and widely disliked in the U.S., but we very carefully and militantly have decided not to change it. Um, there's a there's a fun uh, documentary about climate change. It's kind of mockumentary. It takes place in the future. It looks back at the early 21st century and says, well, how did we get to this position of disaster? They, well, we talked about the early 21st century and we call it the age of stupid. Um, and that's that's the name of the documentary. The late great Pete Postlethwaite is the uh, is the uh, narrator, um, and so it feels like that when it comes to uh, uh, healthcare. The reason this matters for higher education is 
several fold. One is that in, in higher education, we spend a, a significant chunk of our curricula and research uh, on the full spectrum of healthcare. So that by full spectrum, I mean, including, say, psychology and therapy, also including uh, computer science for digital medical records, including hospital administration, as well as, of course, you know, nursing and surgery, and now famously public health. So all of that represents a chunk of, of higher education. And my my hypothesis for this scenario was following the trend of increasing investment in allied healthcare in the U.S. Projecting that forward, I imagined healthcare becoming the leading economic sector in the United States, um, taking you know representing the biggest swath of our entire macroeconomic investment. And one of the, one of the other trends that powers that, besides America's snafu of financing, is demographics. And we'll come back to that a bit, but basically the American population, like a lot of populations in the developed world, uh, is getting older. And we know statistically the older humans get, the more healthcare they tend to consume. Um, so if I put that hypothesis out there, what does a scenario of, of that kind of healthcare nation look like? And it means that higher education teaches a lot more in allied health. And that, that means you know bigger, more nursing programs, but also more interdisciplinary teaching. So more philosophy programs, for example, uh, teaching more medical ethics, more literature, teaching literature of medicine. Think, for example, about Frankenstein, um, as well as history, doing more uh, history, uh, including healthcare. It also means uh, changes in uh, primary and secondary school. Uh, think of, uh, you know, in the U.S., we speak of undergrad education as pre-med. Well, imagine high schools having pre-pre-med um, also think, too, about more partnerships with healthcare sectors. Uh, so, for example, campuses partnering with hospitals to exchange spaces at different times of the year. Um, all of this, you know, when I posted this uh, scenario, it's, it's borne out so far. Um, healthcare just continues to grow. Uh, the last semester, uh, spring, actually the last academic year, we've seen enrollments in healthcare dip down a little bit. Uh, but for the previous two years, they just boomed. So uh, it's still absolutely enormous. So that's that's one that seems pretty unremarkably true. Mm. Um, the, It'll be interesting to see if, given the gargantuan size of the U.S. military budget, even expanding under Biden, um, mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see if some of that budget ends up getting di directed towards healthcare, or if it has been already, I don't know. Well, it can in a direct way and an indirect way. The, the direct way is that a chunk of the of the military budget, like the military budget for any country, is actually about healthcare, um, because even a, even a, a military force at peace has people who are sick or, or injured. Um, and of course, the U.S. is still fighting the longest war in our in our history, so we we have that. The the indirect way, though, is this interesting stance the U.S. military has, where the U.S. military is very, very concerned about climate change. Uh, and it has been under all administrations. Uh, and so one side effect or one dynamic within climate change is increasing stresses to human health. Uh, you know, global warming makes it more and more unpleasant, dangerous, if not fatal to live. Uh, Europe is now experiencing this um, with heat waves right now, as is the United States. Um, and these are not the most dangerous countries to be in. Um, but also there's the, there's the impact on changing biomes. Uh, so as animals and plants migrate, they carry new diseases or diseases that are new to different biomes. So I, I think the, the military is going to be tracking this as well. Um, 
right. You're, you're right to point out the military growth under Biden. While the U.S. does present as a very polarized uh, polity, and there's a lot of truth to that, in, in foreign policy and military, we are often in practice quite unified. Uh, and growing the enormous American military machine is uncontested right now. I think that when people mention the military budget of the United States, what they don't realize is how much medical research, technological research, mm-hmm. sociological research is funded yeah. through the U.S. military. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's not just it's not just war machine. It is mm-hmm. actually quite a bit of intellectual uh, intellectual research that's that's being funded through this, this one line item. And I think people Absolutely. don't really understand that. No, you're absolutely right. Um, there's a lot of that, and a lot of that gets outsourced, if you will, to civilian universities. Uh, I, I went to the University of Michigan, and I remember very vividly there was a controversy over uh, physicists and others who were in, who were researching what was the cover story? Explosions in grain silos, and it turned out that this was they were getting Pentagon money to do this, and this was really early development of fuel air explosives, uh, for example. Um, Plus, you have we have institutes like uh, DARPA. Uh, mm-hmm. We have, uh, and you're you're so right to point in medical research. I mean, one of the sad facts of technological history that's not really often discussed is that the experience of war uh, is a huge stimulus for research and development in medical science. Um, you know, you think about, for example, superglue, uh, which came out of the Vietnam War as a quick wound healing. Um, you know, you look at the 1860s where American uh, medical uh, practice took had a huge overhaul, a massive boom. Um, it's a sad fact, but it's it's one nevertheless. You're absolutely right to mention that. So you mentioned healthcare nation. Another one I think you said was peak higher education. Um, I think we met each other through you know online, and we've I think we met twice offline now, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Um, through the work that we've done in education, but maybe people have heard of peak oil. What do you mean by peak higher education, and how? How do you feel that's already starting to play out? Uh, it's played out for a decade now, I'm afraid. Uh, when people use the peak model, they're referring to uh, basically a graph where any the, the subject under consideration is rising and it reaches a peak and then it falls. Uh, so we speak about peak car, for example, where uh, we're seeing me passing car ownership to some extent. Uh, peak higher education is a model I came up with in 2013. Uh, and it refers to, in the United States, a long boom in enrollment starting the early 1980s. Uh, where just the number of students enrolled just increased and increased and increased. And that, that along with that went expansions in faculty, expansions of staff, physical plant expansions and campuses, the creation of new colleges and universities. And in 2012, it reached a peak. And starting in 2012, the number of students enrolled began to decline. And that decline has occurred every year since, in fact, every semester since. And uh, for the first seven or eight years of that, it was a decline that few people noticed because it was about 1% uh, each year. Uh, And nobody was really excited about this. And then with COVID, it accelerated drastically. The uh, undergraduate enrollment declined by roughly 4 or 5% uh, in the two years, the the two great years of the pandemic. Uh, So we're down now, depending on your measurement, 10 to 20% for that peak. And... uh, I projected this, and not with any delight or or pleasure. Um, and I, I I added I tried to explain how this worked and what could con- make it continue. Uh, so we think about 
uh, anxiety over paying for college, which again, the United States, we're not exactly unique, but our system is still pretty rare. Uh, Britain is trying to catch up, I feel, in some ways, although your own financing system with grants is, is uh, fairly distinct. Um, but we, we've we invented this enormous uh, bolus of student debt, which is now roughly $1.7 trillion. Uh, and we don't really have a way of going back on it. The, the Biden administration right now is fumbling around trying to figure out if they're going to do some debt forgiveness. But even if they did, uh, and I'm not sure they will, but even if they did offer a significant amount of debt forgiveness, the, that whole bubble will continue to inflate because the drivers behind it are still present and the Biden administration has no plans to, uh, to adjust them. Um, and we could talk about the reasons behind that. We could talk about, say, state governments, for example, reducing the amount of, of funding they give to campuses on a per-student basis. We can talk about the reasons for price increases in American higher education. But, but the, the fact of that, of that peak having been met and now we're sliding down the wrong slide, the wrong side of it, uh, has implications for higher education, has implications for how we fund things. Uh, the main economic engine for propelling American colleges and universities is tuition and fees. Um, and so, I mean, only a handful of schools have an endowment big enough to you know, make money on. Um, and state governments tend to support only a minority of a budget at best. Uh, so if that enrollment begins to drop, then the income begins to drop and you see the problem. Uh, and we've already seen signs of that uh, with cutting economic, cutting academic programs. And the usual pattern is cutting programs that don't enroll a lot of students. Uh, and those tend to be in the arts and humanities. Um, sometimes the cuts are minor, <clears throat> uh, still painful, but involving, say, uh, forcing a program to stop offering majors. Uh, it still offers minors and still does uh, service general curriculum work, but uh, and sometimes it involves not hiring again uh, faculty who are retired, uh, not hiring in that line, or not hiring adjunct faculty as temporary faculty hired to teach one class at a time. Uh, sometimes it involves actually getting rid of tenured faculty, uh, and I've called that process after the uh, operation in chess the queen sacrifice. And I've seen that's played out across hundreds of campuses in the United States. So yeah, it's I've been like following what you've written about that with, with interest, because as you say, this is you writing about the U.S. market. But as I learned when I worked at Moodle, what happens in the U.S. has ramifications and repercussions around, around the world. Um, and I thought, I, I thought it's interesting what you said earlier about Healthcare Nation and about, you know, um, the growth of the healthcare sector, you talked about philosophy, which is my original subject, mm. um, all that kind of stuff and, and the growth of that. At the same time as peak higher education, meaning that those kinds of faculties and departments are being cut, it, it really pains me when I see history departments, mm. philosophy departments, humanities departments being cut, yeah. especially as you've already said, they're exactly the kind of skills, people that we need to solve the coming crises. So yeah. Do you, do you see any recognition of, of that dynamic within higher education? Uh, I, I, feel, uh, I feel very similarly. Again, you know, my, um, my background is English literature and, you know, I, I've taught in that, in that role for years. Um, and it, I, it doesn't fill me with any delight or, or schadenfreude or self-hating uh, dynamics. It makes me sad. Um, and I wish the humanities would fight better, um, you know, fight for enrollment and fight for their status better. 
Um, and it is a problem in that this is knowledge which uh, our population deeply, deeply needs. Um, but the, the the knowledge, the educational experience isn't uh, isn't necessarily gone. Uh, I think one of the transformations that's not being remarked upon as much is the transformation of some of these humanities fields from being full degree granting programs to being service programs. Uh, so students definitely get exposed to it in undergraduate curriculum and general education. They just are less likely to major in it. Um, so I, I, one can overstate the loss, but I think uh, I think it is a loss and it's a, it's a serious problem. When we come to climate change, I mean, for me, climate change is the ultimate transdisciplinary field or a transdisciplinary topic. Um, and again, the humanities have so much to contribute, um, potentially, and already literally with fields like the digital humanities and, and the environmental humanities. Uh, so any any reductions to them is uh, is foolish and dangerous. Let's actually talk a little bit about the connection between education and climate. And I, I have a question here that I would love to to ask, which is, as as you've been talking, you've been quite diplomatic um, and quite objective and, and balanced. I would love to know how your personal politics, your personal feelings, your personal beliefs around climate change play into the work you do, whether there's a thread that's advocacy for you, um, that you yeah. sort of you know, I, I think education is always advocacy in some form or fashion, uh, because mm-hmm. I, I believe that the b- basis of all humans' problems always link back to education in f- some form or fashion. Um, mm-hmm. But if you have some some ideas about how your personal viewpoints actually tie into the work that you do and how you maybe advocate um, or what you advocate for in terms of, of the climate crisis, I'd just love to hear you talk about it. Well, that's a fantastic question, um, and 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 thank you for asking it. Uh, because there's always, I think this is true within uh, many intellectual enterprises that you have this balance between wanting to uh, advocate for your personal take on something, or but at the same time you you feel uh, bound to present an objective reality. Um, so you know, as, as a doctor to a patient, you might say, "Well, you you've got to stop smoking or, or whatever." And I'm, I'm passionate about that, but also I can say, "And here's all the science, right? And here's the objective reality." And uh, I also know you might not uh, stop doing that. Um, I part of my work with academics and climate change is simply to explore the full spectrum of what climate change may mean for colleges and universities. My, my new book on this uh, called Universities on Fire will be out this fall or winter, depending on, on supply chain issues. Um, and I spent a lot of time digging into all the different ramifications. And <laughs> the book is in press right now. I don't like, oh no, I missed this other ramification. I've got lots of stuff, so I'm continuing writing on this. Um, but there's a, but you know, you, you think about the, the research enterprise, uh, what we research um, and how there's obviously, you know, you think about fields like uh, you know, earth science, you know, uh, chemistry, atmospherics, you know, but also you think about psychology. Uh, which is already having a research into climate grief, what some call solastalgia, uh, what happens when, uh, you know, uh, uh, Doug, you mentioned, you know, your, you and your children hiking Hadrian's Wall. Uh, what happens when you hike it 30 years from now and the, mm-hmm. the biological situation around it is different um, because it's heated up 
Um, and how do you deal with that uh, psychologically? Sociologists are examining how human societies uh, respond to climate and how we might learn from that looking ahead. Political science is uh, looking at things like how do we handle national sovereignty? Um, you know, problems like what if Brazil stands out as the only country not doing something for climate change and because of their ownership of the Amazon, this is horrible. How do, how does sovereignty work for this? And so, I mean, field after field looks into this, um, which leads to teaching, uh, you know, the curricula. Do we expand more and more classes, programs, majors, entire degrees, uh, schools devoted to climate change, climate mitigation, climate adaptation? Uh, what happens to our physical campuses? Uh, so I may think, for example, do you ban fossil fuel burning vehicles? Uh, do you start uh, onshoring, if you will, power generation by putting uh, wind turbines or solar, depending on where you are, uh, or geothermal, etc.? Uh, you know, do you tr- how do you change the building construction to reduce the amount of carbon that's emitted? Do you try to change the diet that is served on campus because we know that uh, uh, the current food systems tend to generate methane as well as carbon dioxide? Uh, and so on. So, I, I mean, researching all, and this is just scratching the surface. There's a lot more to it. I'm happy to talk about that. But on the personal advocacy side, right now, a lot of what I'm doing in academia is trying to get people to think about this at all, because it's really not on the table. Uh, if, if you look at, uh, at, at the programs for professional meetings, Climate change just barely appears. Uh, if you look at discussions about uh, a core curricula, it's just not on the table. And I, I'm fascinated by this. And I, I started kind of satirically to write an essay about this. Um, Freud has a wonderful, wonderful essay called uh, The Resistance to Psychoanalysis, which I recommend to everybody because it's a very sarcastic piece uh, where he asks, uh, tries to figure out why people uh, don't pay attention to psychoanalysis or, or deny it. And he makes this clever jujitsu move where he says, ah, it's because they're resisting it. And resistance is a mechanism of psychoanalysis. So by resisting it, they're confirming it. Um, so I've got a kind of sarcastic argument about this. But I, I, I do want higher education to pay attention and then to do things. Because if, if this is the most enormous crisis facing human civilization of our century, surely, surely academia can do more about it. And that does that mean uh, partnering with local communities to support them in transitioning off of fossil fuels? Does it involve partnering with local communities to do things like building seawalls? Uh, do we create a climate core at a global scale where we have, you know, you think about how many students are involved in post-secondary education worldwide. Do we try to mobilize them into a, a group to try to do something? Do we, do we break our often politically neutral stance and try to lobby nations to change their behavior on this. I mean, I think there's an enormous potential for this enormous sector to actually be involved or not. And that's something which I'd like to advocate for. I think, I think that's, I'm not making faces and shaking my head because I I find it fascinating that we are actually having a conversation where we are talking about the awareness of our own power to implement change in regards to the climate crisis. And I'm probably too close to it because I've been working with Greenpeace for over seven years. I've Mm. been a climate activist for a really long time. I do things in my own life. Like I'm, I am aware and taking action and know young people who are out on the street every Friday and, you know, all of these movements, I'm so close to them. And so when Mm. I, when I'm just reflecting how like the emotion that comes up in me realizing mm-hmm. that there's you know that that 
there is this giant sector that could be making massive changes even before we get to the policy stuff, even mm-hmm. before we get to the like getting off fossil fuel stuff. I'm I'm actually surprised that that your answer is about awareness um, mm-hmm. because it like for me, it feels like everybody knows everybody knows we're in this climate crisis. Everybody sees it playing in all of these different ways, the amount of weather events that we've had. Um, I find it, I just find it really surprising that people who have the power to implement sustainable changes, even, you know, even some of the examples you gave, like it's, you know, the director of food services at University X has the power Mm -hmm. to be able to make decisions at a level that actually matters and has impact um, and the and the fact that that we're still advocating for people even to to think uh, about the power that they have is I just a big internal sigh. <laughs> well, it's it's a this is a professional risk for for futurists is that we have to look at the full range of possibilities and 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 that can that leads from the utopian to the dystopian mm. and and we have to be aware of the human capacity for change so i study social models of change all the time institutional transformation um and uh i have to as an analyst and as a forecaster be prepared to say we may be living in the years of stupid as i said before mm. um and then uh, as a as an advocate to as to the extent I can to say, let's not be stupid. Um, I mean, I, I have to be—I have to be absolutely fair. There, there are there are many academics who are interested and knowledgeable, uh, but I think in many ways they they lack traction, um, and partly because the past two years we've been convulsed with a, a terrible pandemic at a global scale. Um, right now, a lot of academia is thinking about the uh, war in Ukraine. Um, also, depending on where you are, different nations are thinking very, very hard about uh, racism and anti-racism, and that often will soak up a lot of attention. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Well, especially, I mentioned the financial pressures on American higher education. There's that, and those are worsening, and that takes up some of your attention, right? So a lot of faculty, staff, uh, students are trying to survive, or they're trying to accomplish their mission of researching French history or getting a degree in, in nursing. Um, so I, I think there's a limited bandwidth issue here. Uh, and, and also, there's we still live in a world where people can control what can and can't be said. I think I read in some of your work, Brian, actually, there's a, yeah. there's a place in America, I can't remember where it is, but they've literally bands talk about climate change in their local council or, or whatever. Yeah. Like you're yeah. literally not allowed to talk about it, even though it's, yeah. it's affecting the coastline yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. In Scotland, which is not too far away from where I live, um, I'm in the north of England, there was an exam question and they, people were asked, might there be any benefits to climate change? You know, just get, getting people to think critically. And that question was on the front page of newspapers and BBC, whatever, like how dare an exam board say there might be a benefit to a reason? Well, where I live, Laura and I have been comparing notes. It's been up to 39 degrees Celsius where Laura lives. It's barely hitting 20 where I am. And so where I live is going to turn into this lovely place to go on vacation um, because of climate change. But we can't talk about that. Um, We can only talk about the massive negative things. So as you say, certain things just soak up all of the debate. And so you can't even have a a rational conversation about about the issue. It can can be that that politically shaped. Um, So in in various countries, you have very active climate denial movements. um, And you have, uh, and in parts of the developing world, 
you have that, that of course that you know India is a good example of this where they'll say well look you know we need to develop um, and uh, we resent the developed world from telling us you can't burn coal. Well, we need to burn coal so some of our population can have electricity in a reliable level for the first time. Uh, you know, you look at China, which is a world leader in renewables, and at the same time is a world leader in emitting uh, fossil fuels. Um, and and you know, I, I think the the there's also, as you said, the the, the sharp partisan divide on this. Um, which really peels back and forth. In, in the U.S., we have this phenomenon called rolling coal. Laura, have you experienced this? No, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's, it's when you take a vehicle, usually a truck, and, and you, uh, you hack the uh, exhaust and part of the engine in order to belch out more smoke and blacker smoke. Um, huh? And some what? trucks have done this. Uh, it's... It, to, to raise a giant middle finger at, uh, at climate change um, and to say, you're not going to take my, you know, my fossil fueling car away from me. Um, in the 2020 presidential campaign, Trump was fixated uh, on, on how uh, a hypothetical Green New Deal would take people's hamburgers away from them. Um, and uh, always, a, always, always a savvy communicator, as every literature person knows, food is something which is not just essential for life, but crucial to our understanding of who we are. Uh, so zeroing in on food is really, really important. I, I think I think one thing we're likely to see, if I can connect both of what both of what you're saying, is we're likely to see political unrest on campuses uh, as students, but also faculty and staff. Um, get active and take measures into their own hands. For example, uh, petroleum engineering is one of the most lucrative fields in, in to be in in the world. It's an incredibly reward, uh, financially well compensated field. So we have faculty who teach petroleum engineering. We, I'm expecting students as well as some faculty and staff to protest the existence of such uh, professors on campus. Um, I mean, think Andreas Malm. Um, who is a, a Swedish activist and writer um, and an unbelievably prolific writer. He's, he's kind of notorious now for making the case for direct action against fossil fuel enterprises. Uh, he has a short book on this called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And uh, he has, uh, but he, I recommend reading him. As usual, he's one of the Scandinavians who has a, a, a breathtakingly excellent grasp of English, more fluent than many English writers. It's disturbing. But, uh, uh, but he makes the case. He said, well, if you think about this, if, if you expect that climate change is likely to result in the deaths of millions, surely that means we are now in the present justified in taking extreme measures. Um, and so, like forcing your cafeteria and campus not to serve meat anymore, um, or you know, having a strike where you prohibit uh, faculty from teaching or taking money from fossil fuels, um, I expect to see more and more of that coming. Well, this—I mean, this is the fascinating thing, and it kind of feeds in. I wanted to make sure before we finish that we talked about you pretty much predicting the pandemic in your last book, um, right. just as it was starting. Yes. So you know, we weren't able to deal with the pandemic as best we could because we didn't fully think through the ramifications and what it would take to actually be prepared and put yeah. in the resources and the preparedness, etc. Similarly for climate change. So in that last book, Academia Next, on page 23, you know, you imagined a major pandemic striking the world and all this kind of stuff. And I guess from your point of view, it was just another thing on the list of like these things might happen in the next century. Um, 
and this one is very, very likely to happen, you know, statistically likely to happen. And it must be amazing when you go and talk to universities that some of them don't have any preparedness. And then you're basically saying the same thing about climate as well. Wow. Well, this is another risk of uh, futures work uh, is if people uh, don't listen um, or they don't or they don't take steps. Uh, I mean, so this is the, the now notorious page 23. Um, <laughs> and I, I wrote I wrote that in around 2018 or so. Um, and this is uh, people ever since have asked me, you know, what dark forces are you in league with or, you know, what did you know? And uh, and and the, and the fact is that futurists, as well as public uh, health people, have been forecasting pandemics since 1990. Um, and they've been right. Uh, you know, you think about SARS, you think about MERS, you think about, you know, far more terrifyingly Ebola and, and other diseases, uh, not to mention, you know, the persistence of malaria. Um, and, you know, you can watch a film like uh, Contagion, which I always recommend because it's a it's a superb uh, film which models in many ways uh you know the outbreak of such a such a pandemic the irony of a film like contagion is that it presents the american cdc as heroic and flawless which now is, is a disaster. um but the uh, people have been thinking about this to what extent is is the climate crisis is is the covid experience a kind of dress rehearsal for uh, how we respond to the climate crisis is it, or is it diagnostic? What is it revealed about uh, humanity's capacity to respond? Um, the the great philosopher of science Bruno Latour has a, an interesting article about this from about a year and a half ago. Um, and in some way, I mean, there's some things we can look at coldly and analytically and see that that are true. For example, international collaboration was paltry. Uh, we had some, but we tended to respond to the pandemic uh, on a national basis. You know, you think about, say, uh, Russia or China um, and the U.S. celebrating their own national brand of, of, uh, of a vaccine. Um, you know, you could think about uh, the Johnson administration, sorry to say, uh, fumbling its way around, but but doing so for, for Britain. Uh, you know, you think about Brazil right now, where Bolsonaro may lose an election simply because he was so, he mishandled the pandemic so badly that it's actually costing him, uh, and so on. Um, we could also think about the uh, the politicization of science. Um, that science became openly, openly political in, in, in a wide range of ways. I mean, anti-vax people, of course, you know, being anti-science, that kind of thing. But also we've seen, you know, a lot of scientists take openly political stances. Uh, in 2020, we saw uh, quite a few public health people say that uh, police violence against black people in the United States is a pandemic or is an epidemic and needs to be stopped. Uh, and the Biden administration's you know, claim to follow the science has clearly not been followed. Um, and so political you know, politics says, if you'll forgive the terrible word choice here, has trumped uh, science repeatedly. Mm. So looking ahead, uh, I think those are things that we should expect. But at the same time, at the same time, we can look at the creation of the, of the vaccine. Which is which is astonishing. I mean, a, a historical development, um, and it's it's it had incredible life saving benefits already in, in an incredible hurry, um, and I think people would celebrate it more actually if not for the fact that uh, Trump was the leader of it in the United States. Um, but it's uh, but I think that that points out to the fact that we are are constantly creative, constantly innovative, thinking about ways to respond. So when we talk about ways, for example, of structuring seawalls, or how do you minus a seawall, how do you 
change architecture of a city when sea levels rise? Do we think about floating buildings, buildings on stilts? Uh, when we think about ways of moving agriculture, so you look at Canada, for example, and say, this is going to be a breadbasket for the world in some ways. All right, well, how do we fertilize that? How do we develop the soil? How do we protect all of that? There's a lot of invention, much less if you just, just glance into geoengineering, forget for a second the politics and the dangers, just forget for the huge amount of invention. You know, there are multiple ways of seeding oceans, multiple spaceport platforms, atmospheric injection. I mean, that that is a key takeaway from COVID is that we mm. are massively inventive species. Um and and yet, I can be sad. I mean, we we fumbled the pandemic badly. Um, you know, the death toll uh, in the world is past six million, uh, and the number is probably double that um, once we take a look at, uh, uh, at at bad data about this. You know, in the U.S., we passed a million. Uh, it's probably one point four million. And the the terrible specter of long COVID is now apparently something that we're just embracing, um, where mm. you know, maybe twenty percent of people who get infected have some form of long. COVID. Yeah, in the UK, it's um, two million people, four hundred thousand people out of work, um, <sighs> and you know, no one's really doing anything about. It. There's a member of my family who has long COVID and can't work. It's mm. it's crazy. Fine, we're going to have to wrap up in a moment, but there's a there's a couple of things I've definitely taken away from from this, a, a lot amongst many, um, which is. You know, the, the timescales on which our systems work aren't mm. in tune with the challenges that we face. Yes. So, you know, we've touched on politics, we've kept it to one side, but we've got four and five year kind of rolling terms, yes. which means that politicians are never looking in the long term kind of stuff. We've got banks openly saying that their loan books are on average six years. And therefore, you just these things aren't in tune with the the, the long period of time that we need to spend thinking about this stuff. Um, and the other thing is just the, the way that you've very kind of eloquently talked about having to be dispassionate about all of the different scenarios that could play out, whilst at the same time having strong views and trying to advocate for certain ways of that the way should that the world should be and, and the way that we can trends can be accelerated because of emergencies and the thing which is a the thing which I'll take away is what trends are we actually trying to get going even in a small way so that they can be accelerated given an emergency someone who I follow became a crane driver of those really tall cranes Mm. because she realizes that come reconstruction because of climate change there's going to need be need for lots of people to be able to reconstruct things with cranes like they're smart that kind of level of thinking that um, I really appreciate with you and her and other people like that. Well, well, thank you. I, I, I would, you know, think about uh, climate migration um, and what that means for campus. So if, if where you are now, Doug, is going to become a nice balmy Italian landscape in, uh, in a couple <laughs> of decades. Um, so, so for some people, they can say, well, I'm fine. You know, uh, you know, we, we talk to campuses that are on, on elevations, um, but not depending on glaciers. They say, well, we're going to be fine. Say, yes. Maybe you will be. Uh, it depends on what happens. And Laura is thinking now, you know, about say diseases jumping over. Uh, water quality is a huge. But, but just set that aside for a second. I mean, we're looking at millions of migrants 
uh, climate migrants. You know, if you if you just you know look at the globe and you just look at the equatorial regions, realize how many people are living in Nigeria, for example, uh, or Eastern Africa, uh, or Bangladesh, uh, and think about how badly they're going to suffer and how migration is a logical response. You think how badly Europe and the United States have recently responded to tens of thousands or just thousands of migrants from the Middle East and North Africa. What happens when you have a million people cross your shores or tens of millions, right? So I think that that uh, that academy that's in a nice physical location that doesn't think it's going to be that threatened has to start planning now. Do you, for example, offer physical housing, um, you know, for climate migrants? Um, you know, perhaps you do that on an exchange basis with a university or college that's in danger of shutting down because of too much heat or being subsumed by the waves. Uh, or do you uh, offer to teach online virtually uh, for climate migrants? I, I remember during um, a few years ago during the MOOC, uh, frenzy. There are people who are criticizing MOOCs for teaching online and bragging about teaching uh, migrants. But the fact is that migrants have a tremendous need for post-secondary education uh, when they move to a new country to learn about that country, its history, its, its politics, its language, but also their own professional uh, needs to to uh, reskill or to declare themselves for a new situation or to change jobs, to become a crane driver in uh, in Norway, for example. Uh, we have uh, So do we now plan uh, to take all of our lessons from COVID, from what we learned about teaching online uh, and take that forward so we can offer the best possible pedagogical experience. Uh, we, we have to be thinking on this generational timeline. I, my new book looks out to the year 2100. Um, I think that's a challenge for people who think in six-month or three-month increments. But it's a challenge that we have to be up to and we have to face because the people that Laura is talking about uh, the people who are going to Extinction Rebellion or to the Sunrise Movement who are coming out every Friday to protest, they're the vanguard. Uh, we're going to see more and more of them, and we have to be ready in the academic community to respond and to take that forward at the very least, not to mention to take a leadership role on a planetary scale. Yes. <laughs> I just did the mind-blown um, gesture for those of you who can't see me. <laughs> um, Brian, I want to talk to you about it. 70 other things, um, but I imagine you have quite a bit to do. So I actually do have a final question for you. Um, sure. And it is whether or not you have ever met your doppelganger um, and whether or not doppelganger is your favorite German word. Well, um, the, the question comes up because I did my dissertation on doppelgangers in, in, in uh, Romantic era British literature. And uh, yes, I have met a double. Uh, and I've seen several uh, because I have those of you who, who are listening to this. I have a fairly distinct appearance. I have a lot of hair, uh, including a big beard. Uh, and I'm also physically I, I look like a, a, an alien from a, a high gravity planet. I'm fairly squat, um, a weightlifter. Um, so uh, I've met several and one of them is a good friend. Uh, Steve Burnett is a uh, 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 an IT guy and also a fantastic electronic musician uh, in North Carolina. And, and he and I look disturbingly alike. In fact, we, we have a couple of selfies of the two of us, which if you search for the term double or doppelganger actually appear. Uh, really? Is, yeah. Okay. Well, I know what I'm doing this afternoon. Well, let's have fun with it. But it's tricky because doppelgangers are usually bad news. Um, yeah. they're, they're almost always fatal. Um, so, uh, it's either my favorite or second favorite German word. The other being, of course, the great German word Schadenfreude, you know, pleasure in the suffering of others, um, which, uh, uh, is something that, you know, just to have a word like that says so much. Yeah. Um, 
But I have to say here, what I've enjoyed is the pleasure of having a fine intellectual conversation with the two of you. Thank you very much for hosting me and being great, great. Well, thank you, Brian. And we're looking forward to a new book coming out. When did you say it was and what was the title again? The title is Universities on Fire. And it's coming out from Johns Hopkins University Press. And it should be out later this year, again, depending on on, uh, on uh, all kinds of supply chain issues. And for people who want to find out more about you and to follow your work, where's the best place to go? Well, my blog uh, is uh, a, a solid place, brianalexander.org. Um, also, if you want to get a sense of all my different research projects, you can go to futureofeducation.us. Um, and uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm Brian Alexander. Uh, and uh, those are some of the major ways. Great. And that's Brian with a Y. Excellent. It is I'll definitely. Thank you so much. We're going to have to get you back for a round two because this was fantastic. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you both. I look forward to it. Thank you.